Record, record, record. One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. Hi, everyone. I'm glad you're interested in listening to my full uncut conversation with Sylvia Bug of PBS. I love uncut interviews myself. But before we get to that, I need to tell you that we just kicked off our May Day to Memorial Day fund drive with $25,000 to raise if we're to keep our programming coming throughout the summer. You'll know even more about this by the end of this conversation, but public broadcasting depends on independent producers, like my team, coming up with our own support for the programming we make. Our support comes from our listeners and viewers. We don't take money from corporations or government. So we really need your contributions today. Become part of our team at lauraflanders.org forward slash donate. lauraflanders.org forward slash donate. Be part of our May Day to Memorial Day fun drive. Help us reach our goal. Thanks. Now, on to the uncut conversation that I had recently with Sylvia Bug, Chief Programming Executive and General Manager of General Audience Programming for the Public Broadcasting Service. Today's guest, longtime PBS executive Sylvia Bug. She was promoted to Chief Programming Executive and General Manager of General Audience Programming last October. We are thankful for her service and honored to have her with us today. Sylvia, thank you so much. Um, Thank you. The length of your title indicates its importance. So I just want you to explain what your responsibilities are. And I'll put my cards on the table. Do I need to be scared that you can boot me off this program (laughs) if I ask the wrong kind of question? Laura, I would never do that. I'm so thrilled <laughs> to be on with you today, and I've actually been looking forward to it. So, yes, uh, Sylvia Bug, Chief Programming Executive and General Manager of General Audience Programming for PBS. And in all of that, what matters, the difference, is general audience programming. So my team uh, oversees all of the content strategy for primetime uh, programming, non-children's programming, so that's another department. And so we really do look at all of our content for our primetime schedule, working with producers, working with PBS member stations, major producing stations, and an array of production companies to deliver great, compelling content for the primetime schedule. All right. So we're one of those production companies, and people can get us to explain that at some point in audience chats on our uh, YouTube channel, perhaps. But while we're with you, um, I want to congratulate you on the Black Church series, um, which launched, I think it was round about Valentine's Day this year. February. You were um, involved and it was something to be proud of. You want to talk to people, tell people about it? Sure. So so that actually had been in development for a while, as you know, uh, programming on PBS, particularly the multi- hours, primetime programming, it takes a while. It takes a while to gather funding. It takes a while to uh, get programs filmed. Uh, And of course, during a pandemic, uh, just when you think you have a great engagement plan, COVID happens. And so there was a lot of shifting, um, but I think we're all very proud 
of the Black church that premiered with Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. And it was just a special time, um, me growing up in the Black church. It was especially uh, personal and just a, a great uh, time, I think, for PBS to uh, have content that really speaks to um, a wide variety of our audiences and just to see the outpouring of support and some of what we were able to do in the engagement space uh, with that particular miniseries was, was just fantastic. So thank you. Well, let's talk about that engagement space. You know, as I mentioned, we're in a moment, and this will not come as news to anybody, of tremendous transition when yeah. it comes to media and engagement. Um, and it was shocking to me recently to talk to a woman in her 40s, a woman of means, white woman, um, grew up in Washington, D.C. And I mentioned public broadcasting to her and she said the image that came into her head was a black and white TV set with rabbit ear antennas. <laughs> so help me, help me, Sylvia. Um, tell, tell us why you care so much about public broadcasting. You were there in the 90s, you come back. Um, what's important about it to you? What is it you don't own stations and you don't own programming, right? So I'll, I'll give you a bit of response from a personal uh, lens. So I, I'm a kid of the 70s. I grew up in rural Southern Virginia um, during a time when uh, we were lucky to get a good signal out of the Richmond, Virginia market or, or um, further south out of the Durham, Raleigh, North Carolina market. So we sit right um, in between those two uh, areas. And so I grew up watching PBS and without it, um, I, I don't think I would have been exposed to all of what I learned um, thanks to PBS. So perhaps when you were talking um, with a woman who uh, was reminiscing and thinking about what, re what reminds her, um, what comes to mind when she thinks about PBS is black and white. I'm in that same boat because for me, I grew up, you know, on PBS and it was such an important part of my life coming from a rural underserved area of Virginia. And it just opened up so many opportunities for me. And so fast forward, um, it is a unique, unique opportunity for me to be able to come back to PBS. Um, and this is my third tour at PBS actually. So some people don't know I was here in the nineties um, and I left and I came back. So this is my, my third time at PBS and third time is always a charm. And so I think when it comes to engagement and it's not in any way a comparison to what commercial media or streamers are doing, but I do like to think of PBS content as a place where you can take that programming and it will last far beyond just a premiere or, or just a, a night in the, in the schedule because we do think about what those engagement opportunities are. And it might be how it helps to spark a conversation in a community around a particular topic, but then also learning media. And so some of the feedback that we got, particularly during COVID, was how stations and markets were able to use uh, our content during at-home virtual learning. And so when I think about engagement, uh, it's not really only in that sort of traditional way of, okay, you go take your film into a community screening and you'll have some punch and some cookies and we'll talk about your film. So I think uh, about engagement as really a way that we think about our content trying to be transformative and how it really transcends. transcends. So when I go back to think about the Black church, some of the feedback that I got personally, you know, were from people who did not grow up in the black church, but they could 
relate to the Black church being a place for a community, a place for how young African-American children, we say we were raised in the church. And so I like to think of all of those elements as engagement. So we're taking that content beyond a single airing and just finding ways to more strongly connect. I think particularly to your point in these times that we're in as a nation, to be able to have that content that speaks to a particular experience, perhaps that others can relate to in the sense of community and family and faith. So to me, that really transcends um, race and ethnicity and backgrounds and experiences. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah, and we're excited. We've done a certain amount of programming with my local church in New York, Middle Collegiate, and it's an extraordinary um, pastor, Reverend Jackie Lewis. Mm. And she's going to be joining me more in programs as we go forward, um, because I think that churches have been a meeting place, um, you know, as a, as a queer woman of the 80s. Um, I've had my challenges with churches, yes. but I've come back for the community. And in some ways, I think PBS kind of provides that community. And I just want to underscore what you said at the very top, which is you were able to get public broadcasting TV when you probably wouldn't have had great broadband, even if we were talking about the 2000s. Um, There's lots of parts of this country that still don't have streaming internet. And then there are the people who just don't want to give all their private data to a monopoly set on messing with their minds. Absolutely. And I understand that because um, my sister is an educator. She um, used to be in the classroom with um, special needs student and students. And so now she's an assistant principal down in the Southern Virginia and the Tidewater area. So she shared personal experiences during COVID when families may not have, you're right, access to Wi-Fi and broadband. So to think about, you know, those children who were able to access some of that PBS content and provide some of that um, filling of gaps while they were not in the classroom. So I like to think of it of us as, yes, providing content, but also being a service provider. And so, um, yes, black and white, I'm sure there are images of that, but I... I <laughs> I do like to think that we've also transformed um, some, some of that um, through our efforts to stay keen to technology and how we're evolving our platforms as well. And so we do a lot of work, Laura, in terms of thinking about where that content can play. Um, and so for us right now, even um, my department uh, editorial leads primarily had been focused, you know, back in the day on linear broadcast. And so we're now thinking from day one of development, what is a a multi-platform approach to this project? And so we're working with our marketing group, our digital team, our learning media, um, our engagement department to really look at a piece of content or project holistically, because back in the day, you would say, okay, I've got this great idea for a TV show is what we used to say. And then you'd come along towards the end of the project. It's wrapping up filming. And you say, what can we do in the digital space? Or how can this be used? We can just live content and short pieces for learning media. But we've had to evolve our R&D process to think about where these content pieces could fit. How do we customize them in a way that is most appropriate for a particular audience? So really trying to focus on audience specific, going, taking that content where audiences are versus building it and expecting that they will come to any and all platforms across PBS. You and I are on the same page in our enthusiasm for this idea of public service and how it can be better. Um, The programming service and the 
funders behind it, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, have come under criticism many times, but most recently this March, when a long list of filmmakers of color, including several that have been on this program and several that make programming for PBS, called PBS out for its over-reliance on one cis, white, hetero, oldish guy, um, Ken Burns, uh, for telling the story, all the stories of American history. Um, I'm sure you share these concerns. What in your capacity are you actually going to be doing to, to um, diversify who gets funded to tell our stories? That's a great question, Laura, and thank you for, for bringing uh, this up because I agree. Uh, we have a strong foundation in PBS and public media. We have a history of inclusive programming. However, we do recognize that there is more work that we all can do, that we can do PBS specifically. And we welcome that dialogue on this important issue. So I think in addition to many of those issues raised, I have an interest um, in this work that I do to look at ways that we can grow the pipeline of more diverse makers that we can all collectively think about long-term sustainability um, and how we can also look at ways to expand distribution of content from all makers across all platforms. So I feel like these conversations um, can be on two tracks. So one is to, of course, think of ways to, and, and actually develop ways to bring more inclusive content into the pipeline. But I think we also need to look at what does the future look like in terms of ensuring, and I, I've always said this, that PBS's content should be reflective of the audiences that we serve. With that, we have to look for more ways that we can bring in more funding because we know that PBS isn't a single source. We know that CPB isn't a single source. So we often have to go out for those limited dollars, either through philanthropic support or corporate support. So I think there's a way that we can come into these conversations in meaningful ways and dialogue, but also think about what the next 50 years looks like. And I think there's an opportunity, especially now, for us to be able to do that. So I'm excited um, in this role uh, to, to be able to kickstart those conversations and do it in a way that really ensures that we're on a good path. We have a good framework for how we can think about not just, you know, content, but also look at, you know, those opportunities that we need to create to feed the talent pipeline of the next generation of, of makers um, from diverse backgrounds, including BIPOC makers. Um, and then also look at what are those long-term long sustainability um, efforts that I think is incumbent for all of us to think about. So those are just some of those areas where I do think there's an opportunity for us to dive into these areas um, much more deeply. We're going to get into the dig we're going to get back to what's happening in the digital space um, in just a second. But, we'll but while we're talking about this, it, it is important for our audience to understand that the funding is very decisive. Um, for those of us in the independent media making world who try to provide content to public television, we have to go looking for our own resources to do that. I, I don't know if all the viewers understand when they're pledging, it doesn't come to the programmers. Directly money comes through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, um, which receives congressional appropriations. But 
this is a challenge. Where does the money come from? And how does the next generation um, get made visible on a platform where I can imagine what it's like for you. You have Ken Burns walking in with a bunch of cash already there from his underwriters and you have to choose to bring in new programmers that maybe not don't have that inbuilt philanthropic support. And that's partly because of our society that has right. a lot in a very few hands and very little spread out amongst the rest of us. And others. And, and I would say this, I would make this observation when we talk about equipping in better ways to even in an R&D phase, because we all know, I get those requests all the time where a producer may say, I'm going to go out and do the fundraising, but I need some meaningful commitment from one of the public media entities, whether it be, as you say, a CPB or a PBS or um, some roads to access just to even get that R&D research and development funding or seed funding that they then can go out and say to a potential funder, I've got this commitment, I've got a pathway for distribution. And I, I think funders particularly are um, also savvy in the sense that they ask a lot of the same questions. What's your plan for distribution? How are you thinking about multi-platform? What's your education plan? So to the extent that we can do more work to identify very early on ways to better support all filmmakers, I think that will help in terms of them being able to say to a potential funder, I've been talking to public television, there's a path forward. I even have some R&D, but that's not enough. We know that there is much more work, even in terms of the production funding piece uh, that has to be addressed. We believe we're big believers in partnerships here. And one of the partnerships I'm, I'm excited about um, in the works here at the Laura Flanders show is partnering with some of the extraordinary local media outlets that, you know, people talk about a crisis in journalism. I actually think there's an extraordinarily exciting efflorescence of journalism happening um, a lot in BIPOC people of color hands, but uh, also at the local level um, doing journalism in a whole different way. And when we can connect those journalists with our national platform, which is also in their backyard because we're on that local station, mm -hmm. I think we're going to see some exciting things. So stay tuned for that. Um, yes. I want you to talk about digital. Um, mm -hmm. In order for you to become, you are now PBS, um, in order for you to become the network and the, the programmer that for general audiences that you want to be, you've already said it, it can't just be trying to get people to turn on their television sets. Mm -hmm. uh, and in an interesting um, story, not long ago in the Columbia journalism review, you had Alan Goodman, the longtime media um, critic and writer saying, this is a perfect time for public broadcasting as a public service to be engaged in this sort of building of trust in the civil society of, of, of this country. But in order to do that, you have to shift from public broadcasting service to a public media service. Um, and how do you do that? And then how do you do that without increased congressional, which is to say macro federal support? Sure. No, that's a great question and observation. And it is the one thing that I think about most often. Um, I will tell you that we often will have producers will say, how did my show perform? What's the overnight? What's the national numbers for television? So in some ways, along with everything that you've referenced in terms of thinking about a digital transformation, it's also an education, right? So we have to say, no longer are we just focused on overnight 
broadcast numbers and that part of the metrics, we really need to think about this holistically. So I will tell you a funny story. I have two nephews who are in their early to mid twenties and I had an extra TV lying around and I said, Hey guys, do you want this extra TV that I have? I don't need it. And they said, no, we don't, we don't need a TV because we use our phone. We use the laptops that you brought us um, when they were in college and they use their iPads to consume content. So it really is, I think in some ways um, in education, right? In terms of making sure that people understand the metrics by which they're measuring their own success. And it is no longer that linear broadcast experience. It is not to say that we abandon what we do in terms of a content focus on linear broadcast, but we need to look at, and I'm using one of my colleagues phrases, a spherical approach where content and audience is really in the middle of this experience that PBS will take them through, but we can find ways to customize that content for my nephews. They grew up in the black church. So I said, Hey, I know they're not going to watch PBS broadcasts, but they sure enough tuned in to Facebook. They tuned in to some of the other platforms, um, either PBS owned or third party platforms that we partner with to experience, for example, the black church. And so for us, it's really thinking about um, how do we continue to grow? We have the PBS app. Our marketing uh, colleagues do a fantastic job of thinking about what those platforms are, um, where we need to be, but where is PBS in terms of how we identify and connect with our brand and some of these emerging um, platforms. And so I'm excited about that, that I can actually come into a development meeting and we have our digital and our marketing colleagues in that meeting to talk about Here's a piece of content. What can we do with it on other platforms um, so that we can bring more audiences in the aggregate into a PBS experience? So um, it's exciting, but it also, yes, it requires um, more resources. But I have to say, Laura, I think what we're able to accomplish with what we have is a lot. And I think especially as we're connecting to our local stations, um, my idea, our idea of a, a national local model is my mandate is to build that content where there are local opportunities. And I'm just so encouraged by what many of our local PBS stations are doing in the digital space. And so there's a group under general audience programming called PBS Digital Studios. And so that is our YouTube channel experience. And in many way we call, ways, we call it sort of the R&D lab, if you will. So that is the place where we get younger audiences, ages 18 to 24. They've launched more than 60 web series, a vast 3 billion views, and have about 27 plus million subscribers on this PBS YouTube platform. So I think to the extent that we can continue to work with local stations to think about this content, and they're much more nimble, right? They can get these series up and going um, relatively inexpensive in comparison. And I think it is a good place for us to find more producers who can come into the digital studios experience. Um, they do fantastic work uh, with BIPOC producers and um, attracting BIPOC audiences. So that's just one way that when we think about the entire audience experience of PBS and PBS content, we're really leaning into it while not alienating our core PBS viewers. So I always say Sunday nights will always be Sunday nights in terms of our <laughs> drama slate. That's not going anywhere. We continue to do 
uh, blue chip natural history and science. We've got great personal history. Antiques Roadshow is going strong, even in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, our partners at GBH were able to continue to provide content under Antiques Roadshow. And so there is the what I call the bread and butter um, of PBS content that will remain consistent and constant. But I think in this mass media ecosystem, there is a pretty vast opportunity mm-hmm. for us to look at some of these digital uh, opportunities for growth across our content strategy. All right. So how do we, how do you, if you've got a spectrum that goes from the antiques and the Brits mm-hmm. to um, the new black indigenous BIPOC people of color, people are getting used to the term um, new youth programmers on the, the YouTube platform. What do they have in common that makes it public broadcasting? What's the public part? Right. So, so when I think about that, I don't see, you know, BIPOC producers and content. It's not a separate bucket. In my mind, I think about all of the content themes and genres that we provide for PBS and PBS audiences and finding ways to amplify those diverse perspectives across all of those different themes. And so what I'm interested in. I'm just saying that they're not deeply embedded in the Antiques Roadshow and the BBC dramas mostly, but that might be changing. Well, well, that's my point, right? Like when we look at all of the content areas across our nights of the week, in my mind, we find ways to bring more diversity across the board. So it's not separate buckets of content from those makers, right? And so what I've been thinking about and what we've been working on with the team is what are those sub-themed opportunities? So it's very easy. If you watch PBS, you know that Wednesday nights is science, Sunday nights is drama, Monday nights you're going to get certain content, Friday nights you might you know, get over to news and public affairs content baked in with some arts content. Um, but what are those sub-themed categories where we can say this is a theme or thread of content that is relevant, that's timely, that really does reflect many of the conversations that are not only being had in some ways globally and nationally, but what are you talking to your neighbors about in your local community? What do you get together at dinner time with your family and talk about in terms of those issues of the moment that we can really think about providing content opportunities in ways that hopefully we can bring in a younger audience? So for example, in my mind, I've been thinking about for example, arts during COVID. And so we know that Broadway has been closed. A lot of arts organizations have literally shut their doors. We don't know if they will come back, if when they come back, what that experience will look like and also artists opportunities. So where can we help to bridge that divide, if you will, in terms of one day, hopefully we'll go back to the big and glossy Broadway. But I think that during this time of COVID, Um, There's been amazing resiliency from artists and arts organizations. We're starting to have those planning conversations. So to me, that's an opportunity for PBS to say, during COVID, we've been offering this content. And what more can we do to highlight arts during COVID? Mm -hmm. I think climate and the environment is another example that we've really been leaning into a solutions-based storytelling approach uh, in terms of a lot of work that happens globally and nationally in conversations. But really, if you look out your window, you know, climate and environment is part of our everyday existence. So what's the opportunity there for us to bring in fresh 
voices that are more diverse come from different geographically diverse locations. So I think there's an opportunity there. Obviously, in the social issues space, um, you know, in terms of everything that's happened um, in the past year, in terms of racial unrest and division and attacks in uh, certain uh, communities of color. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there for PBS to maintain its core content that will continue to serve our core audiences. And I'm excited about that content, as well as how could we lean more into um, issues that have become a part of our everyday life and existence. And some are you know, painful and challenging, but I think that's where the S in PBS comes in, in terms of being a service, being well, a service to some of these, some of these themes. Well, you're going to love our show this week with uh, Shuteska Martinez, the hip hop artist, and uh, Fabian Rodriguez and Aja Monet are talking exactly oh about arts in COVID times. Um, but there are, I mean, just to push a little, there are programmers all across the country. I'm, I know several who work at uh, CBS and um, Channel One in New York yes. who would say the same kind of thing as you're saying about what they want to put on the air. But there is something different about the structure of public broadcasting, which is to say it's not broken up every 10 minutes by advertising, mm -hmm. although there are increasingly long underwriting statements. Um, what makes it structurally, institutionally different? And the reason this is so important is it speaks to our moment politically with the new administration talking about infrastructure mm -hmm. and rebuilding community wealth and broadband. And I keep saying community media is part of community wealth. And how come they don't talk about media, meaning things like PBS, mm -hmm. uh, when they're talking about rebuilding infrastructure. Because this, to use the language of a, another recent guest, Heather McGee, mm -hmm. seems to me is one of those sort of public pools that's been emptied out um, mm -hmm. and needs refilling. It's, mm -hmm. it's a public good. So, um, sorry, I'm on my, my soapbox about this now. But structurally, where you've had fights every generation to fight for resources, public broadcasting and television and radio and cable, but in the current year, we haven't really had this fight beyond net neutrality, which was super important, but mm -hmm. not about public commercial free space for communication. Yeah, and I think those are all very important points. And I would just say from, again, sort of a content perspective, when we talk about these public and open spaces, um, it is such that we don't avoid some of those challenging conversations. And so, for example, I'm interested in how PBS can be a service to present this national content, but also in a way that we can bring in our local stations and their perspectives. I was speaking to um, a station general manager a few months ago about some of the work that she's doing to help bridge divides in her communities, particularly following the election. So we have started to think about democracy, how we define democracy depending on who you are and your backgrounds can be very different. And so just because, right, you turn a page on a calendar, it doesn't mean that these important issues that should be a part of the public discussion and dialogue go away. And so I think that is one of the unique values that we can have in PBS and public media is we don't do the pin drop or the popcorn and then we move on to the next issue. For us, it's really about how we can embed some of these themes and topics. So we've been talking about democracy and how do we translate that 
into content that is not um, didactic, that is not everything we've seen before. So really for me, the big question is why this content and why now? And so I think when we have to look at the total dynamic of the service that we offer, um, we have to constantly ask ourselves that question, what continues to keep us relevant? And um, it's not a one size fits all. So to the extent that we can really, really answer that question and we pose it to our producers. So you have this idea for a show, why now? And, and really try to query that and go a bit deeper into the producers to find out you know, what, what is the thing that moves them about this particular project. And then we work to find how we can make those connections mm-hmm. into our local markets and communities. And hopefully in a way, it can help to further drive their value as well and us to continue to be able to provide these uh, content and services um, because it is a membership organization. So we're absolutely here to serve our local stations. And what difference that makes to programmers, for those of you who are watching or listening out there, is what well, was brought home to me very starkly recently when I was you know, watching my local cable news mm-hmm. and the entire discussion around vaccinations and different companies with different vaccines was interspersed with advertising from big pharmaceutical corporations, mm-hmm. which made you kind of think, well, what's, you know, these are sometimes we're getting kind of mixed messages. And, and here on public television, I felt that this was the only place, for example, that our show could have a discussion with a scientist and an economist mm-hmm. who says, you know, really, we need to have publicly owned patents of vaccines. Mm-hmm. Big pharmaceuticals owning these patents is a problem. And, and it occurred to me, I wonder if I'd even be able to really have that conversation, sure. at least in any kind of serious way on a program that was funded by, you know, Big Pharma. So sure. that does come back to your funding source. And I know you're the programming czar, not the funding czar, um, but you mentioned members do you have a, a DC strategy right now to uh, increase the funding for the system? And what is your kind of pledge to members vis-a-vis um, the publicness, the commercial freeness of this network? Sure. And, and I would say it is so dynamic. Um, and as you know, uh, part of our funding is, is public funding through the appropriation. And I used to work at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So I have some knowledge of how, how those funds are just so important and critical for the work that we do across the public media system, not just on the content side, but also on services and, and, and the health of the system of the public media system. Um, so I think for us, it's, it's always thinking about what those unique and dynamic models are. And I will say, Laura, I feel like, and to some extent even now, but after last summer and all of the challenges that we had around um, the murder of George Floyd, I felt like corporations and major organizations, and we were all talking about racial inequities and what is it that we need to do to help to further support some of that work that was happening is continuing to happen across um, countries and communities in the country. And so in my mind, I was thinking, this is an opportunity for us to look at even our partnership. And you talked about some of your partnerships, but to look at that model and that structure as a way that we can go out and further expand our fundraising opportunities and models and ways that to find natural touch points for funding support 
we can't just rely on one single source. It's always been that way. And I think it will continue to be an area for us to focus on because we have a lot of different challenges to solve that we are PBS membership station. So we serve our stations, but we have to continue to find those ways that we can continue to pour into um, the funding needs of the system. So I would just say that in my mind, if we can continue to focus on that great compelling content, because when you go into, I think, any conversation about funding and funding support, it's so important to have that structure for meaningful content. And I think that's what makes PBS so unique and a value because we do try to think about that content as being not just something you know that goes out on a platform for distribution, but how we can leverage meaningful content to make the case for further support and additional support. And I'm grateful for all of the funders and foundations that believe in the value of PBS, but there's a lot more work that we have to do. And I think by creating content that speaks to the moment. And I feel as if PBS has always met these moments of difficult times and challenging times in our country, but the work doesn't stop when you flip the calendar into a new day, none of these issues disappear. So if I can continue to do that part on the content side to provide this content that we can make a case for the value for further support, that's that's my focus and 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 what I'm encouraged that that we can accomplish that we can do for the future. Well, listen, <laughs> I want to thank you so much. We will be back in touch with you, I'm sure, as time goes on. Good luck with your your service to public service. And we've thank you. got a practice in this in this season of just asking people: Is there a moment? Is there a person? Is there a a glimpse that you've had in your life that the change you're seeking for? is not just possible, but palpable? Was there a moment that you felt, wow, these systemic changes that we need um, could happen? Um, Because I started at PBS, it was my second job out of college. So my first job was actually in 1993 that I started at PBS. So for me, there are many moments and I would say it's just an aggregate of being in and out of the system for half of my career. I've been in public media, I've also been on the cable side. So for me, there isn't one single moment, but I've been able to take a lot of experiences and, and really the relationships that I think I've built and the great mentors that I've had who have helped to shape um, a collection of those moments that I'm really, really grateful for. So here's to the next 50 years of PBS. We're with you. Good okay. luck. Thank you. Thanks All right, Sylvia, so thanks for giving us some you. time. Bye-bye. Bye.